I get to introduce my man, Matthew Rocklin. He is none other than the an open source software development developer in the numeric Python ecosystem. He maintains several PyData li libraries, but today what we are going to be focusing on mostly is Dask. And so Matthew is, has the fame, he, his claim to fame, one of his claim to fame. So I'm not gonna say it's the only one because he is pretty prolific. But one of his claim to fame is Dask, and we're going to learn all about it today. I know that we've already done uh, session one on this. We also have on our YouTube channel a workshop that was put on by Dan Gerlank about Dask. So all of those of you that are here that really want to get into Dask more, you can check out our YouTube channel and you'll see a lot more stuff on it. But today we're going to tie up all those loose ends from the podcast there's a few things that we didn't get to ask matthew and he also is going to show us more go deeper uh and he's gonna share his screen and get get a little technical with it so yeah welcome matthew thank you right. for having thank you for coming on here and and having the taking the time to uh, be with us great. Um, I cannot share my screen while other participant is sharing. It says. Uh oh, that's because I'm sharing the. <laughs> I'm sharing my music, which I shut off. All right, you should be good now. Okay, great. Uh, yeah, so hey everyone, uh, let me bring up my screen for a second. Uh, so, yeah. So my name is Matt. Uh, I'm sort of an open source software developer. Uh, I've do lots of work in sort of the Python community, especially on the like data science, machine learning side. So think libraries like NumPy, Pandas, Scikit-Learn, Jupyter. I sort of work in that developer community. Uh, mostly my job for the last five or six years has been to figure out how to take that ecosystem of libraries uh, and scale them out. So they can work on many cores on one machine, on data system large memory, or on distributed clusters of machines. Uh, mostly I do that with a library called Dask, but honestly, like. The Dask maintainers maintain a bunch of infrastructure throughout Python to handle stuff. So if you ever like read data from S3 with pandas, or you ever like deploy something on a Hadoop cluster, you're like probably using some, some code that Dask maintainers built. Um, lots of people work on Dask. It solves lots of different problems. We're gonna talk about it generally. I'm gonna like, I've got slides I can go through. Uh, what I thought would be more interesting is to go through a, like, a, maybe like a worked example and we can sort of play around a little bit informally. And I think that example will raise lots of questions. And my hope is that after you know 15 minutes of me blabbering on for a bit, you will have some questions and then there's lots of different places that we can go. Uh, but first, just very basic things you can look at if you don't want to listen to me. There's dask.org slash slides. That's our standard slide deck. Uh, so if you want to look at a basic slide presentation on Dask, there's lots of good things here. You can do that without me present. I don't also, know why anybody uh, wouldn't want to listen to you though. Just well, sometimes I talk a little fast, sometimes I talk slow, <laughs> sometimes it's you know good to go your own path. Uh, there's also examples.dask.org. And there's a bunch of examples here. Uh, so you could look at you know batch prediction with PyTorch. Let me zoom in a bit. And there's a bunch of worked examples, you can look through them. Uh, you can also at the top of any of these pages click this launch binder button. Now we'll start a little JupyterLab session for you with Dask running in one in one pod on, on the cloud. So those are good things you can go do if, again, I am boring. Uh, but now let me go, yeah. So my name is Matt, I work on Dask. 
We also made a company uh, earlier this year called Coiled, uh, which makes it easy to deploy Dask. Uh, so I'm going to talk about that a little bit. Uh, but yeah, let's just jump in and start playing around. So uh, the context in which Dask is useful is in all of the different libraries in Python, like NumPy or Pandas, like it learn, which you might want to use to do, you know, some maybe data analysis, machine learning, other kinds of processing, whatever. So you know, here I'm making a, a NumPy array. It's a 50 by 1,000 by 1,000 array. This is maybe like just random numbers. But you can imagine this being maybe like 50 images, each of size 1,000 by 1,000. And you might want to do something like, you know, compute the mean along the first axis of that stack of images. Maybe you're a biologist, you're looking at microscopes, and you've like captured the same things many times, you want to average that out. You're looking at satellite imagery, or you're looking at, you know, maybe you're in finance and you care about, um, you know, doing a lot of time series prediction, whatever. This is a very simple computation. NumPy is great because it's it's pretty easy to use. Like I didn't have to write down a bunch of C4 loops. I didn't have to know, know the right way to do a mean algorithm. Uh, it's also pretty fast. Like this is running about as fast as one core can run. Uh, this data set is 400 megabytes. Right, and so that's fine. Like this thing happens, you know, in less than a second. So it's super interactive. It's super pleasant. I can just sort of play around with this data. What's challenging is that as a lot of these uh, scientific disciplines or you know data science disciplines, so looking at larger and larger data, uh, this becomes no longer possible. Right. So NumPy says, "Hey, look, you asked me to allocate 37 gigabytes of data for this array, but like your machine only has 16 gigabytes. I'm on my laptop here." So like, no, can't do that. And so this is where the various Dask sub-libraries come in. So instead of NumPy, I'm gonna use Dask Array. So this is one sub-library of Dask. We'll talk about sort of the full breadth in a second. This is one application. And so what that does is that uh, Dask Array gives us a NumPy-like library that looks and feels like NumPy uh, but now operates on lots of little NumPy arrays organized in parallel. So this image that we're seeing on the right here, let's, let's actually increase that a bit. Uh, yeah, so what we're seeing on the right here is a depiction of our array. So our array has size 5,000 by 1,000 by 1,000. Again, you might imagine there being you know, 5,000 images, each of size 1,000 by 1,000. This is one possible application. And what Dask has done is it has cut that array up into lots of little small blocks. As you can see, each of those little blocks here. And each of those blocks is itself one NumPy array. And so Dask is cooperating with NumPy to provide the sort of logical larger array composed of all these little small NumPy array blocks. Now, when I computed the mean, I didn't actually do anything. That was a lazy operation. And so it tells me that you know, the size of my output will be you know, this much smaller array here. Uh, um, and let's go and play with. So we could run this uh, locally, and it would run. But I'm going to actually bring up a dashboard, which make things look a little bit more clear. 
So I'm going to start a local cluster. which is just going to use a bunch of processes on my local laptop. So that started up, it looks like four processes. Each process has three cores. And we're going to get a little, little representation of that on the right here. So on the right, I've got the DAS dashboard integrated into, into JupyterLab. So it's sort of right there in my session. Uh, what I've noticed is that sometimes when I screen share um, and I run Dask at the same time, like I, I end up sort of saturating my machine. So I'm actually going to scale down from four machines, from four processes down to three. And we're going to see that here in this uh, sort of middle lower plot here. This is showing I have one schedule in the center uh, in purple and then four Dask workers, each in orange. This is giving you a sense of the sort of the network topology of my system. So I'm going to scale down from four workers to three, again, just to sort of leave some space for, uh, for Zoom here. And so now, now I've got those machines set up, I'm going to go ahead and compute my result. And so what Dask has done is it has broken up this larger computation of computing the mean across some axis, and it has broken it up into lots of little small tasks. And we see all those little small tasks here in the lower right. Each little block here corresponds to one little NumPy operation. And you can see how they depend on each other, those little lines going between all these little NumPy functions. We can also see that activity in the upper right. Each little block here, each little you know, purple block or red block or little, little tiny blue blocks in there you probably can't see. Those are all, again, also NumPy functions. So let's zoom in. And so what we're seeing here is we're seeing the activity of, I guess, nine of my cores. Let me refresh this. And we're seeing that you know, this particular core in my machine spent 718 milliseconds creating some random data. It then paused, there's a little white space here, uh, as I waited for work. And it you know, made some other block of data for 600 milliseconds. There's a bit of red here. It, it transferred data between two of the processes on my machine. So all the red is inner worker communication. And there's like, looks like there's some little green guys here too. And that is, looks like that's computing a mean, some of these blocks. And so what we're seeing here is that on the left, we had really high level NumPy-like computation. And on the right, that all got translated, I thought broken down and executed in parallel across lots of, lots of parallel resources. And what was great is that we got to do this, this larger than memory thing using all of our laptop uh, in an intelligent way. And we get out the same result we would have gotten anyway. So that's, that's maybe like showing you a few of the parts of Dask. There's some high-level APIs, like this NumPy-like API. There's lots of other APIs for Pandas, for Scikit-Learn, for Prefect, for X-Ray, for Rapids, for Snorkel, for lots of other libraries. We're just seeing one here. And on the right, we're seeing a little bit of a window into distributed execution. Um, so let me bring up some more plots just for a second here. So we can see that we're, we're managing three processes. They're all on localhost, right? But we can see, you know, if they're active or not active. As we scale up or down, we could add more, more or less processes here. I'm actually going to do that now. I'm going to uh, ask for some remote resources uh, from the cloud. And that'll take about a minute uh, for us to get these resources. But we're going to scale up this computation uh, 
You just unmuted, Demetrius. Do you have a question or comment? Yeah, I was, uh, forgive the ignorance here. I wanted to ask about getting this DASC dashboard while we're waiting this minute. Can you explain how we can get that? Yeah, so whenever you are running a DASC cluster, uh, DASC runs a dashboard by default. Uh, it is normally living at um, port 8787. And there's like a, a normal sort of like more web uh, approach to it. Um, so there's, you know, there's, you know, this is like a more, this is a more standard website, more standard dashboard. You can go through and look at lots of different kinds of plots that are available here. Um, but what we found is that people so often had Jupyter on half their screen and the dashboard on the other half of the screen. And we worked with some of the Jupyter Lab developers to integrate the DAS dashboard directly into the Jupyter Lab environment, which actually just like provides like one seamless workspace, which is actually really, uh, really pragmatic. I love this interface. This is why I use Jupyter Lab all the time is having these things embedded. Um, and it's cool because now rather than like having to use one of the layouts that the DASC team arranges for you, you can make your own layout and it's fun to look at, you know, what's What's, uh, what, how my CPUs and my memory doing across my machine? And how do I, you know, can I uh, you know, lay out just the right dashboard for myself? Yeah, that's so cool. The drag and drop is, that's amazing functionality. Yeah, uh, and this is all JupyterLab, right? Yep. Dask did this uh, with JupyterLab, but like other projects can do it too. Uh, a good example of this is NV dashboard. When I went to, I went to NVIDIA, I was working on NVIDIA for a while. And they have all these metrics on, G on their GPUs. And we said, hey, look, the Dash dashboard is great. Let's just, let's replicate that for GPUs as well. Huh. And so here's like a very similar system that uses a lot of the same underlying libraries. This uses Bokeh, which is a, a, like a server side visualization library. Um, and we you know, integrated the same thing into JupyterLab, but now rather than showing Dask plots, you know, showing you GPU memory, GPU utilization, you know, the PCI Express uh, bus transfer speeds, lots of things you actually want to see while you're running computations. It's, uh, it's super pragmatic. Nice. Well, I'm seeing a question here coming through in the chat from Will. He's asking, can you request resources directly from AWS or do you need Collide? Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, so I'm doing that with Coiled. Coiled, sorry. Uh, which is what they're mentioning now. There's lots of ways of deploying Dask. So let's go to the Dask docs, docs.dask.org, and to setup. And so there's, there's a bunch of ways you can deploy Dask, right? So generally speaking, you don't interact with like raw hardware. There's always some intermediate uh, resource manager in between you and that hardware. It might be something like Kubernetes, right? So there's like maybe like three different Kubernetes implementations on Dask right now, uh, for better or for worse. Uh, or it might be something like if you go to cloud, uh, one of the things that we recommend is a uh, Dask cloud provider. It's probably the easiest way for an individual to get like a basic deployment on AWS. That'd be a good approach. Or again, you can use you know, Amazon EMR and use the Dask Yarn integration, or you can use Amazon EKS and use the Kubernetes integration. Um, Coiled is the easiest thing that, uh, as someone who, who you know, built or helped build all of those different systems, Coil is definitely, I would say, the uh, the easiest one to use, and it has lots of things like security built in, but you definitely don't have to use it. Okay, let me grab this. 
this over here. Yeah. So, um, but for this demo, because it's me, I'm using Coil. So I have asked for a bunch of machines. Uh, I, I've switched my dashboard over from instead of being at localhost, it's now pointing to this cluster of machines on the cloud. Uh, so we can see now, rather than looking at localhost, I've got four machines, each with four threads. You know, I'm actually going to scale that up to maybe 10 machines. And again, that'll take a minute or so for those machines to show up. That's kind of the response time we expect from AWS. So about a minute, we'll have not four, but 10. But in the meantime, we can start looking at a different API. We'll go and read a bunch of data from Amazon S3. So here I'm using uh, the Pandas Dask integration rather than NumPy integration. And we're reading some data from S3. We're specifying some data types for some of the columns that are there. Um, and what Dask is doing is it is breaking up that larger data set. I think it's like 20 gigs on disk, maybe 60 gigs in RAM. It's bringing up lots of different pieces. And then it is uh, calling the Pandas read CSV function all those pieces. Uh, then we might do something like compute uh, you know, some normal pandas-like computation. So we'll get that running. And again, you can see how Dask broke that down in the lower right in this task graph. You can see the activity happening in all these cores. And you can see the progress happening over time. And what I expect to happen is that in, you know, 20, 30 seconds, all those machines that we requested will show up and we'll actually see this accelerate quite a bit. Um, but this is really cool because we are you know, we, we could start on our laptop. I'm operating just my laptop. We could start with pandas. We could scale out to a local DAS cluster, use all the resources on my machine. And we want to, we can scale out to the cloud and you know, read cloud data efficiently. We can you know, write to cloud resources quickly, all in sort of the comfort of our existing interface. So Dask is really designed to help with this sort of scaling of these sort of native Python experiences. Oh, looks like the new the new machines are coming on. Uh, right, so here are four original machines. Then we got sort of six more, and now everything is everything's moving a bit faster. So, so that's that's Dask generally. I want to highlight a few things that just happened, uh, which might like I think raise some questions, raise some some interesting concerns. So first, I mentioned there's sort of the API side of Dask. You know, if you're familiar with pandas, you would normally do like the pandas read CSV function, and you might, you know, you might not have this there. But otherwise, everything would be the same. Uh, we talked about uh, asking for resources, and there was the great question of like, hey, how do I get resources on on, on AWS? What's the right way to do that? Coiled is one way, but there's lots of other ways. We're seeing here a warning. Right, we're seeing that Dask is saying, hey, look, I noticed that on your client code, you've got Dask version 2.28, but on the cloud, on the scheduler, you've got Dask version 2.29. Everything's probably okay, but like you might want to be aware that you have mismatched versions going around. That raises a really good question of how do we manage the software stack between you know, our local machine, the cloud, all the different machines we have running on the cloud. How do we make those things match? How do we, how do we build some robustness and some flexibility into that? Uh, to make sure that they're okay. Uh, there are things like, if we go look at the client here, <clears throat> uh, we look at the, the address is a TLS address. So we're, we have to be secure. You know, I'm moving data from my laptop where I might have really secure data that I care about out to the cloud. 
um, how do I make sure that that connection is secure end to end? Other uh, questions like, you know, this data, you actually need to be authenticated on AWS to read. How is it that the machines that I have on AWS, how do they have my credentials, right? How do I you know, generate you know, secure tokens? How do I ship them across the internet safely uh, so that Dask in the cloud has the same permissions as, as I do locally on my machine? Um, and there's lots of other interesting questions. You know, how much, how much does this cost is maybe another question. I'm going to go to um, I go to the coiled dashboard, and we can see that you know the cluster I have running is costing us you know two and a half dollars an hour, and it's cost us you know seventeen cents so far. Um, so just you know we're using the cloud, we're using resources. We should be aware of that. Uh, the first time I ever used Kubernetes on the cloud, I uh, I left it on. Accidentally, or I didn't leave Oops. on the clusters, but I left on all the networking, uh, like the load balancers and such. And like you know, six months later, I got this bill. I was like, oh, I owe hundreds of dollars. Turns out, if you ask Amazon very politely, they will, uh, they will, give you back that money, and say, oh, yeah, no worries. But uh, just being aware of costs is something that you know people are often often care about. And does that integrate that? Visual on how much you're you're paying. Does that integrate into all clouds, or is that something AWS specific? This is uh, coiled specific. Uh, okay. Currently, coiled supports only AWS and like bring your own Kubernetes. Oh. Um, we're like working on Azure right now, but we're adding other things. Um, nice. I mean, internally, we're just tracking every CPU second and every gigabyte of memory second you use, and then we you know render that as a dollar figure on the screen. But mm -hmm. it's um. More generally, maybe the question is like, how do you figure out telemetry? How do you figure out what you've done over time? How do you figure out what your teammates have done over time? How do you, you know, like um, a common thing that people often ask for. So you've got someone who has, who's, who's allocated the cloud account and you've got someone else who, you know, scales up a thousand node cluster uh, and just leaves it on. And so, you know, basic controls like, um, you know, look, you asked for 4,000 cores, you've got a limit of 200. Like, sorry, I'm not gonna scale up. I'm not gonna scale up that much. So lots of other things that sort of happen around distributed computing that are sort of different from the frameworks. Uh, and mostly just, I'm, I'm bringing all this up to sort of show the, the breadth of topics that we think about when deploying these systems, right? You go to a normal Dask talk or normal Spark talk or normal TensorFlow talk, and they'll show you the cool dashboard and they'll show you the cool result. And they'll show you the speed up, but they won't show you that like, oh yeah, actually it was a pain in the butt to get the software installed everywhere correctly. And like, actually the person running the experiment couldn't build a Docker image, so you'd have someone else do that. Uh, and like, you know, actually this whole thing was insecure. Uh, and so like, please don't look at, you know, this particular uh, address where you could have run things on my account. So there's lots of other, sort of other stuff surrounding frameworks like Dask. I think it's really important to talk about. So, yeah, one thing that I want to mention, and then I see there's a question coming through in the chat, so I'll I'll jump on that next. But the like what you were talking about with these expenses, and oh, I just I was started reading the question in the chat, and then I totally lost my train of thought. So I'm gonna read the question in the chat, and then I'll come back to what I wanted to ask you. <laughs> um, so Zoe is asking. It, are there any limitations to the Dask Panda functionality? I.e., is there anything you can do in Pandas 
to data frames that you can't do in Dask? Yeah, there's lots of things. Um, yeah, it's a great question. And this actually comes up, like that question explains like maybe 20% of the Stack Overflow questions that we see. Um, so yeah, there's lots of stuff. I mean, the like the classic one here, if I wanted to get, let's actually just look at a bit of this data first. Um, right, so if I wanted to get like, let's say the passenger count, you know, we can get, you know, the sum pretty easily. See how many passengers rode, uh, rode cabs in New York City. Um, so it's like there's, you know, 130 million people rode a cab, but you couldn't get like the, the median, right? right? There's no, there's no median function in Dask because actually like parallel medians are really hard. It turns out to compute. So there's lots of algorithms that are just like are hard to do in parallel and just Dask doesn't implement them. But we will implement things like approximate quantiles, which is maybe like a, a good sort of parallel variant of that algorithm. Another good example, uh, a lot of people who use pandas will like iterate over every row in a pandas data frame, right? So for you know, row in df dot iter rows. Uh, I think we actually do support this, but, but we shouldn't. Like a lot of operations that are like this really don't make sense. You should not sort of operate element by element. Maybe a better example of that is people will do things like iloc of zero, zero, and they'll, they'll change a value, right? So you don't want to like change an element of a DAS data frame in the same way you would want to change an element of a pandas data frame. And a lot of these things make sense when you think about it. Like if you've got a billion rows, you don't want to iterate over them and like change them row by row. That's super, super slow. We sort of push you into more parallel friendly algorithms. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, no, like DAS data frame supports almost everything of what you would do with the pandas API, assuming you're using sort of pandas operations uh, and not sort of intermixing Python for loops with pandas. Uh, I would say a, a different question is, is it always faster? And, and no, I think the big thing that trips people up is that there's a, difference there's a different performance profile, right? So uh, you know, bulk operations can be a lot faster but you know, like sorting might actually be a lot slower because it's really hard to sort in a distributed way. So there's like a different, I think, performance profile people need to start learning about. So I, uh, I can't really remember my question. So I'm going to just default to the questions coming through in the chat, but it was around something about the cost and not putting your toys away and then leaving it on. And the, like you were talking about it, when you go to spark summit or you go and see a talk on desk and how it's like, Oh yeah, it's so easy. Um, here, check this out. And then they don't talk about these other pieces of the puzzle, like how much it cost or how much, how difficult it was to get these consistencies. Um, but Whatever, it went away and now I've got Will asking in the chat, do you do auto scaling or turn on and off clusters automatically? And it, oh, and, and my question was, it was born again, but first let's ask Will's. <laughs> so it, it was along the lines of Will's, yeah. So do you do auto scaling, turn on and off clusters automatically in an easy way? Yeah, so there's like a few different things you could mean there. Um, so, so yes, uh, Dask supports what we're going to call adaptive scaling. So bring that up for a second. Um, right. So in my example, I said like scale 10 and I asked for 10 machines. 
But you could also imagine like maybe Dash should just figure that out, right? If we're attached to the cloud, if we can ask for as many resources as we want, you know, I've already given my computation to Dask. Dask has an expectation of how long the thing is gonna take. Maybe Dask can make that choice for me, right? And as important as it is to scale up, it's as important, maybe more important to scale back down. Like right now while I'm talking, I don't need those machines, right? Like I could scale those down, I could give them back to Amazon and I, Amazon could stop charging me. And so this adaptivity ends up being really important if you care about the ability to burst and a lot of data science machine learning workloads are really bursty, right? We like do a bunch of work for five minutes then we stare at a plot for an hour. Um, and having that, having our deployment match that behavior by default ends up being really important. Uh, so yeah, dashboards adaptive deployments. Uh, you provide things like minimums and maximums. I think that the, um, where this ends up being challenging is in how quickly we can get new resources, right? So like I'm hesitant to put on adaptive scaling for our cluster because like AWS with the technologies that I've chosen uh, has a response time about a minute. And so like I'm giving a demo for you, I'll like hit compute and then we'll wait a minute. Like Das will say, great, you need 15 workers. We'll wait a minute. Those 15 will show up. It'll do the computation really fast. And then those workers will go away. But like that minute scale up time ends up being fine for you know, data engineering workloads or non-interactive workloads, but ends up being a little bit of a challenge for interactive things. So that's that's one thing you could mean by adaptive adaptivity. The other you could mean is, yeah, usually we sort of Dask talks to Kubernetes, Kubernetes then talks to some AWS resource manager, which then auto scales out. And that has a response time about five minutes usually. Um, so there's maybe two levels of adaptivity, Dask asking for things and then Kubernetes asking for things. In the way we've done it with, with Coiled, we're actually not using Kubernetes, we're using uh, Amazon ECS, which is sort of a more native AWS system. So we don't have that intermediate stage. We're just asking AWS directly for machines and there's not sort of an intermediate layer. But hopefully it answers the question. If not, please, please follow up. Yeah, that's fascinating. That is definitely cool. And so it reminded me, thanks, Will. He jotted my memory and reminded me of what I wanted to ask on this idea that you were talking about of like a fail safe and making sure that you can't just ask for thousands and thousands of computers and how that works. And if you can go into a bit more detail on that, because I know that I, I guess you, you have to just have some some pop-up box that says, are you sure about this? Or what does it look like? Well, I mean, we, we saw what it looked like in the notebook. It looked like mm -hmm. a Python exception. Um, so that's how we, uh, right? So most people don't start clusters through the web interface. Most people start coiled clusters just inside of their Python workflow, right? This could be in a script, it could be in a notebook, it could be in some automated job somewhere. Uh, and so we sort of meet them where they are. And that's, a, that's again, a Python exception. How that works in the back end, uh, you know, we just have like a database running. We have a list of users and a list of teams and teams are associated to users. And there's limits associated to every user team combination. And there's admins who can control that. And there's, you know, billing that they can apply. And so, you know, when you're, when you're running a system like Dask in a more enterprise setting or a more like group or larger group setting, it starts, you start needing a sort of a standard uh, like web database backed web application that tracks everybody. And this actually is, uh, 
know, this is common. You see this for you see this for Databricks for Spark or you know Amazon EMR for Spark. You see this for you know maybe Cloudera has things like this for Hadoop sort of. Um, so you need this sort of like other support management tooling. It ends up again looking like a pretty vanilla normal database-backed web application, which has you know user model and a team model and a account management system. Uh, and so that's what that's what Coil provides around Dask. Um, I'll give a little bit of history here, maybe too. So if you look at the different ways of deploying Dask, one of them we don't hear about as much these days is high-performance computers. So these tend to be like large, big iron computers, usually at universities or research, research institutes. And they've actually had all of this stuff of like user management and quotas from the beginning. They've had this for decades. Um, and so actually the, the user experience there is actually really, really slick. So when you move to the cloud or things like Kubernetes, where these sorts of like interactive user management tools haven't really been developed as strongly, uh, that we're like, we run into more of these, more of these problems. Um, this is one of the cases where the like the, the new guard cloud deployment tooling isn't quite as set up as a sort of old guard high performance computing tooling. Just small historical note. That's that's awesome. So I am seeing a question from James, and he's asking um, maybe a dumb question. No such thing as dumb questions here, James. You dumb, dumb questions are the easiest questions; are the greatest. And you heard my debacle earlier, so I mean, you can't you can't be saying that. So, uh, is Dask supported on Databricks? Does it get rid of the need for Spark? Uh, uh, Dask is not supported on Databricks. I think Databricks probably wouldn't want to support Dask. Um, they're like trying to become not just a Spark company, but they're still very much a, a Spark company. Um, let me point briefly to the comparison to Spark document. Yeah, that, that was actually one of my my other questions was how it lines up to Spark and why you would want to use one or the other. Yeah, and that's um, this is like you've I think other than the data frame API documentation, this is the most frequently visited page on our docs. Um, so yeah, uh, let me ask the like, does this replace Databricks Spark? Uh, no. Uh, what we usually see uh, is that people use if you're already a Databricks user. They tend to use Databricks and Dask together. Spark ends up being very good for a certain set of things and less good for a different set of things, and Dask sort of vice versa. Uh, I think also a disclaimer: like you should not trust me on any of this, right? Uh, you know, Dask is arguably a replacement for Spark, and so you know I'm biased towards Dask. But I'm going to try to put on my like unbiased hat. So. Uh, so yeah, so Spark, I think, is great at data engineering workloads or things that look kind of like SQL. So they're sort of like the SQL, the Spark SQL implementation is way better than Dask. Dask is not a proper database. You should use a proper database instead of Dask. Uh, Spark is also good at the stuff just around the database. So if you have like a big pile of JSON and you want to like convert it to Parquet and then run like a SQL query on it and do some very lightweight machine learning, that's sort of all within Spark's uh, realm of expertise, I would say. Dask ends up being a little bit better as you get sort of a little bit further outside of that realm of things just around a SQL database. So what I mean by this is that Dask is a little bit more flexible. Um, let, me, let me bring up an example. Uh, or we saw like with NumPy, like Dask supports NumPy 
it supports pandas, it supports scikit-learn, it supports a bunch of other libraries that Spark really can't. Uh, Spark is a little bit more rigid internally. It's still fundamentally based on the MapReduce parallel programming model. It's like a nicer, slicker, faster version of Hadoop, but it's still fundamentally the same architecture under the hood. Dask, on the other hand, is a dynamic distributed task scheduler. Uh, so let me, so actually I'm gonna switch to slides just for a second. Um, this will, I think, explain things decently well. Yeah, so when we use Dask, there's a high-level API, like kind of what we saw on our Jupyter Notebook. So what's here on the left. Dask translates that into a lower-level task graph, where every little square here is a Python function. So this graph might have thousands or millions of little boxes in it. That Dask then needs to figure out how to run efficiently on parallel hardware. And what we found is that many people actually didn't need the high-level API or they had different high-level APIs other than pandas or numpy, which they wanted to use, but they did like our low-level task scheduler, the system that ran lots of parallel Python computations everywhere. Uh, it, was, it was kind of as though we had built a fast car and other people just wanted the engine to that car. Uh, that's because they were building something else, building a rocket ship or a Roomba or a mechatronic cat or something. And so this is really getting to the heart of where uh, Python programmers are. It turns out a lot of Python people don't do just uh, SQL analysis. They build lots of different kinds of things and Dask ends up being a lot more flexible. And so it's something that you can sort of sprinkle into lots of different kinds of workflows. Uh, and so what we see is that rather than using Dask directly, other library authors add a little bit of Dask into their library uh, and then people uh, use Dask indirectly. So this video is showing a few different use cases of Dask. Um, so we're seeing in the beginning, we saw sort of the classic data frame example. Oops. Um, and then later on, we're seeing, looking at, so this is, you know, JupyterLab and Pandas. This is looking at uh, multi-dimensional data. So this is, you know, uh, this is ocean currents off the coast of Japan a very different kind of data than it would expect something like a SQL database to handle. Uh, the same scalability, but a very different high-level API. This is using X-Array, which is a system written by a lot of geoscientists. This is Napari. This is a point-and-click image viewer for three-dimensional images or two-dimensional images. What I love about this one is that it is not a Jupyter notebook. This is actually a point-and-click application designed for biologists who are sitting at a lab bench. This is an advanced visualization tool. So all the things that I'm showing you are powered by Dask. And what I love about this is it shows how flexible Dask is and how many different kinds of data it can manage and how easy it is to build into other different kinds of applications. So that's really where I think where I think Dask shines over Spark. That it's not trying to be this like monolith of a tool that solves this you know, business intelligence problem. It's trying to be a much more general purpose tool that other library authors can integrate into their systems. Uh, this is a good one. This is uh, NVIDIA Rapids. So NVIDIA, the GPU company, is uh, building their own technology stack uh, around data science and GPUs. And they've, they've based it on top of Dask. They actually, there was, a, there was a Dask team and a Spark team running at NVIDIA at the same time, trying to support their multi-GPU data science workloads. And the Dask team just goes so much faster because it's not in the JVM, if you want to use GPUs, JVM is a big hurdle. 
Dask also just doesn't have as many uh, assumptions about how your computation looks. It's much more flexible. And so it was really easy for the, the GPU NVIDIA team to work with Dask rather than try to sort of shoehorn Spark into solving their problems. Um, and the third is it's Python, it's a little bit newer, it's more modern, it's like kind of easier to work with. So that was a really long answer to what was a, a very good question. Um, but yeah, yeah I'll, I'll pause there. I had no idea about half of these that you just showed, but I love the analogy of you take the engine and you get to make your own fast car with it or Roomba, as you like to say. Or Roomba, yeah. Um, yeah, and that's, um, if we have time, I'll go through another example with some of the lower level APIs, which show you how you build your own stuff. But there's another question. Let's go to that first. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So Matt is asking, can jobs be scheduled through Dask and Coiled API, like running a task every Sunday, for example? Yeah, that's a great question. And this actually gets back to the previous point about Dask not being the end product, but it being part used by other products. So what I would suggest for the, the sort of use, run this task every Sunday, using a project like Airflow or a project like Prefect, uh, both of which have Dask integration. And so tools like Airflow or Prefect have a lot of that business logic you're looking for. You know, run, you know, run this job every Sunday. If it fails, email IT. If it succeeds, run this other job and, and do this other thing too. But sometimes those tools need to execute uh, at scale, or they need some like some some more reactivity attached to them, and that's where combining them with Dask can be really helpful. Uh, Airflow is probably the like standard tool today for this kind of problem. It has Dask integration, um, but actually some of the some of the Airflow maintainers uh, left because Airflow wasn't quite flexible enough. They made a project called Prefect, uh, which is like Airflow if it was designed in the last few years, and it is built from the ground up on top of Dask. Um, and so for exactly your situation, I would use Dask and Prefect together or Dask and Airflow together if you're already on Airflow. And along those lines, what other tools are you seeing being used with Dask a lot? Are there like some that it's, uh, I'm not gonna say default, but something that it, it, they go perfectly together? Um, all of them? I don't know, there's not a good answer to there. Um, so we started with NumPy, Panda, Scikit-Learn. Scikit-Image was early on too. Uh, and that was kind of how we started. And that's where we expected things to stop. That was the original goal of Dask, parallelize those libraries. Um, but yeah, like I think I was on, a, was on a, a call like this one. We, every Thursday, run our own uh, live stream at Coiled. And we had someone from Grubhub who's using Dask with TensorFlow and with Snorkel. And he, he like imported like from snorkel.dask import something. And I was like, whoa, there's like there's Dask integration inside of Snorkel. That's news. Um, and so yeah, there's not like a it's not a project or set of projects that is particularly uniquely good for Dask. Like Dask is low enough level and we try to be generic enough that it, it works mostly everywhere. Uh, there's some cases where it doesn't work, right? You like can't replace NPI with Dask. NPI is like a super high performance like million node supercomputing system. Um, but generally speaking, Dask is pretty generic. So I'm wondering about, and if you wanna jump into what you mentioned uh, about a few more APIs, 
that you were just talking about for the last couple of minutes, we can do that. But before you jump into that, maybe you can tell us about some of the learning curves that people tend to have and what are some obstacles to getting started with Dask and adopting it? Yeah, I'll mention maybe there's maybe two good examples there. One is uh, what someone asked about uh, Pandas functionality. Um, as we switch to distributed computing, like our understanding of performance has changed. Like we all have in our heads, like a model for how fast computers are. We have a model for like, oh, if things are in memory, they're fast. If they're on disk, they're slow. Um, um, that model just got way more complicated because we threw in like network and we threw in, you know, machines going up and down and we threw in, you know, GPUs. And so like, we need to all like retrain ourselves a little bit to have a different mental model of performance. Um, our approach to that is the dashboard. So having the dashboard there flashing lights at you while you're doing computations is designed to train you to think about performance and let you know when things are going fast or slow and why. Uh, and so that's a, that's a big hurdle to adoption that we see today. And almost always the answer there is use the dashboard. Do whatever you can to have the dashboard in front of your eyeballs while you're computing, and you will very quickly learn those skills or, or build that intuition. Uh, the other challenge we see, this is going to be, I'm, put on, I'm going to put on my for-profit hat here just for a second. Uh, the other challenge we see is around deployment. So it is really easy to run Dask locally on your laptop and get use of all those cores on your laptop and large memory workloads. And it is also easy to you know, set up Kubernetes on the cloud, deploy Dask on Kubernetes. If you like have some cloud ops experience, you'll be fine there. It ends up getting harder when you start extending that to not just yourself, but to you and teammates or to you and secure data or to you and other things. And there's, that's where we see, I think a lot of groups stop. They like get some proof of concept running on Kubernetes on the cloud, but it's like them and maybe a very small group of people. And it quickly becomes either a hassle to manage or just like they can't extend it to their, their actual data sets because IT isn't comfortable with them running this open and secure system. And that's where I think Coiled comes in. So we, we made, I didn't, I have no desire to run a company. Um, I can, I'm going on vacation next week because my brain is a little bit fried. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but Coiled is designed to, uh, to solve those problems. And so maybe I'll, I'll leave briefly with, if you pip install Coiled, uh, and then you uh, import Coiled, and create a cluster. Uh, you'll be like asked to authenticate at some point with GitHub or Gmail or something when you're able to track who you are. But like those three lines uh, will get anybody running on Dask in a secure monitored way on the cloud immediately. And that's that's the other main bottleneck. And Coil is designed to uh, remove that bottleneck, if that makes sense. Damn. Yeah, that's fascinating. And that is, I remember you saying that when we were doing the coffee sessions that it wasn't your intention to create a company at all. It just happened. <laughs> I went from being like a programmer, which I, I, I love, to being like a community maintainer. I spend most of my time on GitHub issues and like meetings and trying to get companies involved and you know solve hard problems, uh, a lot of social problems. And then recently as, a, as making this company, we, we needed to make a company. There was no... There was no way we could get like large companies to engage with us as an open source community. We needed to have some sort of like for-profit entity 
that could like engage with and wrestle with and like sign legal documents with and be sued by um, large companies. Most importantly, be sued by. Yeah, no, it's, it's amazing what you can get done if you are an entity that can be sued. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, I think, but the fact that this works, that you can pip install coiled, import coiled, create a cluster, and then have everything just run, um, that like is, is a lot of work to make sure that that is seamless. And there's a lot of things that people trip over in getting that to work well. And that's probably the other main barrier to adoption, which again, hopefully we are solving with Coiled. That's the purpose of Coiled. So, yeah, let me, unless there's so other questions. There's, there's one more question coming through and uh, I know we're, we're getting short on time, so I'll ask it real quick. Uh, can you give advice for where to store large real-time data with Dask? Generally, there are so many options of how to store and process data at scale. How should we get started building data pipelines with Dask? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, Dask is a component of your pipeline, right? So Dask is not gonna be the entire thing. You're gonna use Dask along with Pandas and along with you know, the Facebook profit library or something, and along with some data store. And you gotta figure out what the data store is. You know, People use Parquet a bunch today, Looking at real-time data, maybe need to have some sort of intermediate buffer there. That's an interesting question. Um, I can't answer that question specifically without knowing a lot more about the context. Uh, and this maybe gets to a broader point about Dask. Dask is not the complete framework, right? Dask is going to be a part of your of your system. It's part of your system that's going to handle a lot of parallelism, uh, but you're going to make a lot of other choices. You know, do you want to encode that data in flight in Arrow? Do you want to encode it in Avro? Do you want to store it in um, there's so many different time series databases and time series systems that, you know, there's lots of options, unfortunately. Uh, I can't solve that problem for you uh, directly. I can tell you that whatever choices you work with, if those choices work well with Python, it is probably easy to have Dask solve a lot of that problem, uh, but not the entire thing. Yeah, that's great. And that was kind of what I, I was trying to touch on earlier on the what you feel like goes together with Dask. And so those are some some really important things to grapple with, right? As you're starting to set up your pipeline, how to line it up. And I think you phrased it perfectly when you said, yeah, it's it's not the whole thing. It's a piece of the puzzle and there are many other choices that you're going to have to make. And those sadly might be very difficult choices. Yeah, and that'll, I think that actually leads back into this, this example a little bit. Uh, you should maybe think of Dask less like Spark and more like the threading module or more like zero MQ. Dask is a system that you're gonna couple with other things to handle parallel computation. Um, um, so it's, it's more, more general purpose. Let me run a quick example here. So I have a few Python functions that are really generic, inc double add. Uh, they're sleeping for some random amount of time just to simulate work. But this might be, you know, load some data from some time series source, maybe Kafka, right? Uh, process that stuff in Kafka and then you know, do some accumulated uh, average. They're doing a rolling, a rolling mean. I can run them locally. Um, that takes you know some second, some amount of time, or I can submit these to run remotely. Oh, I think that 
One second, let me grab. I think these pods might go down periodically. Let's see if this is still running or not. Yeah, great. I spent too much time talking. Yeah, I can run that remotely, uh, or I can submit this Python function to run on my cluster somewhere. And when I get it back is I get a future. I get some sort of token leading to some remote result. Uh, this ran asynchronously. And so when I first got this result, it was pending because I hadn't finished yet. But if I look at that again, uh, we see that it's it's finished. And you know, there's some, some integer living on some remote machine somewhere. And this future object is a pointer to that remote data. And so my local session and my remote workers are talking constantly to each other, keeping each other up to date about, what, about what's happening. If I want to, I can then bring that result back. And so this is a very simple example, which shows that I can run a Python function on some remote machine. So this is like the lowest level uh, element that Dask would handle. Uh, Dask also handles things like dependencies. So we're you know, calling inc, calling double, calling add, and let's pull graph plot. And we can see that there's uh, a dependence relationship between them. So this line of code encodes a dependency, and we're seeing that same dependency mimicked here with inc, double, and add. And you know what's what's fun is I can do that you know hundreds of times. So I can submit thousands of tasks per second to Dask. And Dask will manage dependencies between them. It will manage, you know, failover, etc. Uh, we're going to scale that up because I want this to run faster. Notice I've got two minutes left. So we're going to ask, you know, not for one machine but for ten machines. This is again where we we scale up and we get that parallelism. But this computation is not a big pandas computation. It's not a big NumPy computation. I am manually determining exactly which Python function to run and their dependencies. And because of that, I can build actually relatively complicated algorithms with normal Python code. Um, and so here we've got you know, some sort of like a tree reduction. And you can see the sort of tree structure falling out. Or we can do things dynamically. Right? So here I'm submitting lots of tasks. And as they're finishing, I'm actually submitting new tasks. And so you actually see the number of tasks that are submitted here changes over time. So this gives you maybe a, I went through that very quickly. You can again through, go through it yourself. But this gives you a sense for some of the lower level APIs that you can use in Dask to build up some of these higher level features. And all this stuff I'll, um, I'll share in the, the show notes if you're listening to this in the future so that you can go and follow along and check out the docs and all of that good stuff. So Matt, thank you so much, man. You never cease to amaze me with your wisdom and your knowledge on this. It's absolutely incredible. I really want to thank you for being here and, and teaching us about Dask and uh, also sharing what you're doing at Coiled. It's really cool stuff. Yeah, my pleasure to be here. Those are great questions from the audience. Thanks, y'all. Uh, yeah, feel free to read yeah. yeah, and so the best way to continue talking to you if someone wanted to... Um, continue the conversation? Uh, yeah, so there is, if you go to dask.org, there's a community page, which will show you lots of different ways, ways to get engaged with the Dask community. Uh, you can follow me at mrockland on Twitter or coiled at coiledhq on Twitter. Um, and you know, depending on if you're a community person or a coiled person, there's different, different routes there. Uh, maybe dask.org and coiled.io are probably the best places to go.
And you also mentioned you do Thursdays, you have a, a meetup, right? Yeah, so we do, uh, if you go to youtube.com slash C slash coiled or look for coil on YouTube, uh, we do live streams. Um, and so we'll, we'll tweet about them whenever they come out. It's usually on Thursdays. Uh, and that's usually looking at Dask users uh, and how they use Dask in practice. So I mentioned before like Grubhub is looking at, I think the intent of search queries using Dask and TensorFlow and, uh, and Snorkel. Um, you know, I think last week we had a geophysicist on uh, Lindsay who was looking at you know water resources underground and how we how we inspect those using Dask and some like high performance Fortran codes. Mm. So it was a lot of fun activities that are happening there. Yeah, I'm sure there's some fascinating use cases with this. Incredible, man. Thank you so much. Thank you everybody for joining us. If you're not in the Slack, jump in it. We will be continuing the conversation about all this MLOps chat. And Matthew, thanks again. I really appreciate it. We will see you all later. Bye, everyone.